Well, praise God. It is a blessing to be with you guys uh, again today. Uh, last week we talked uh, about, uh, you know, the people of Israel were in this uh, situation. Uh, they had no water, right? They're in this place of uncertainty. And Moses was forced to, to cry out to God on behalf of the people so that he would come and he would, he would save them. And I was sharing that, you know, we are often more like the Israelites uh, than we are Moses. That when, when we are in seasons of uncertainty, of, of stress, or, or, or that we're anxious, that we often, our, our hearts are conditioned uh, to ask the question, is God really among us? Like, that's how we're conditioned to act and behave, is to doubt the presence of the Lord is eminent. It is here. His spirit is working in us. It's guiding us. He's, he's leading us. That, that's our tendency as, even as believers, is to doubt the presence of God. And I was saying that we have to be a reconditioned to trust him, trust his spirit inside of us, right? And to cry out to him when we are in these moments of uncertainty. And so I was talking to my uh, small group about, about this sermon, you know, last weekend. Uh, I had an older gentleman who said to me, he's like, you know, David, you actually did a, a pretty good job last week, which is by far the nicest thing he's ever said to me about my sermons. And, and he said, you know, the one thing I wish you would have done is had application points at the end, he said. Right, like what, what do we do when we're anxious? What do we uh, do when we're nervous? What do we do when we're stressed out? What, what does it look like? What, what are the steps to crying out to God? That's what he was saying. And I thought about that because I was like, you know, I know this week I want to almost have a part two to last week. I want to build on the idea of, of pursuing and crying out to God and his presence. And so I was thinking about this question, what, what does it practically look like? How do we apply it to our life, right? And so as I was reading the passage for today, I was looking uh, for insight, right? Looking for insight to kind of help guide, you know, what, what does Moses do that we can learn from? But perhaps steps that we can apply for our own lives uh, to cry out to the Lord. But as I was reading it, this is a weird passage, isn't it? Like it's like you're like it's kind of strange. So I was looking for some you know context clues. Maybe the Hebrew will tell me something. And so I was reading more commentaries than normal. I was reading commentary after commentary after commentary, trying to understand what Moses is doing once again for insight for us. What should we do when we want to cry out to God? And finally, I found you know one commentary, one one scholar who I thought said it quite nice. He kind of summarized what I was reading, and I thought it was the most insightful thing I read. And he was talking about right interpreting what Moses was doing, trying to understand it. And what he said, I'm going to read. So I don't get it wrong. Uh, what he said um, regarding what Moses was doing, he said these words. He said, "I don't know." That's what he said. And. As I was reading other commentaries, it kind of jived what they were saying. They were like, we don't know. We don't know what the heck Moses is doing. We've we, we, we never seen a story like this before. We don't see a story like it afterwards. We don't, we don't know what's kind of happening. Kind of like, some, like some kind of voodoo magic. His arms are raised and they're winning. His arms go down. What the heck is going on? Like We, we don't even know. And I thought it was insightful because it made me realize that perhaps we also are asking the wrong question. Like if you were to ask me, what are the steps? Like what exactly should I do so that God would be more inclined to listen to me when I cry out to him? My answer would be, I don't know. I don't know exactly what you should do. Perhaps that's actually the wrong question because perhaps once again, it isn't about what we do. 
about who we are. And once again, for Moses, maybe it's less about what's happening with his hands and it's more about what's happening in his heart. You, you, you feel me? It's his heart posture, right? It's, it's his heart condition. It's the, 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 the place where his mind is, the place where his body is, what he's doing as he approaches the presence of God. That's what God sees. And, and that's what God responds with, right? Throughout the Bible, people do all kinds of different things when they cry out to God. But what makes God answer? What makes God calm down and deliver his people? It's what's happening in the heart. Because what's happening in there is what's actually fueling the actions. And so that's the question I want to wrestle with today. What is the posture of Moses that we can learn from so that when we cry out to God, we can have confidence that he will answer us? And so the first thing about, or what I want to argue for today is that Moses uh, his heart posture is one of desperate patience. His posture is desperate patience. And I get this from, you know, starting in uh, verse 9. Uh, there's a word in here that was kind of weird to me. It kind of st- stuck out to me. Y'all, y'all know what it is with, with the word in verse 9 that kind of stuck out to me? Thinking about Moses being uh, patient. We'll start with that one. Patience. Moses is patience. There's a word here that kind of stuck out to me. Right? And remember the context of this. We talked about it last week. They had no water for presumably two, three, four days. They had no water. And God just gave them water. But chances are they were still pretty weak. Maybe they were hungry. They were, they were scattered. Right? And in this moment of vulnerability, this is when the Malachites come and attack them. When they're already tired, right? And, and I, I, said, I said before, it says they, they, they were in battle formation uh, uh, back when they left Egypt, but that doesn't mean that they were ready to fight, right? They were not ready. To, they were in formation. They're like Beyonce. They're in formation. They don't want no smoke. They're not ready to fight. And this is when they are attacked. It's a cowardly attack by the Amalekites. It's a shameless attack by the Amalekites. And so I can imagine Moses is there and he's seeing people running around. There's children, there's older people there running around, scattering, fearful, afraid. He says, okay, Joshua, you go out and fight, right? But then what's the weird thing he says? But for me, right, tomorrow I'll go to the hill. Right now they're in trouble. Right now they need help. Right now they're being attacked. He says what? Tomorrow I will go out up to the hill to cry out to God. That's weird to me. And it showed me that Moses was almost supernaturally patient in, in, in this moment. And I was thinking about how patience is a virtue, it's a fruit of the spirit that we don't often uh, have today, even as believers. It's rare, it feels like. And I was on a pastor, I was confessing to a pastor a couple of years ago. I said, you know, when I was a kid, I was very patient. Because I had to be. My parents would always bring me places or leave me in things where I had to stay and wait. Right? And if you're, if you're a kid of an immigrant, maybe, maybe you could relate. But I could think of times, like, for example, you know, at, at a Nigerian church, they would have, um, like, all-night prayer vigils or all-night worship nights. Right? And it would literally be four, five hours long. And it would be in Igbo. 
And you're like, what's Igbo? I'm like, exactly. What's Igbo? I don't know what they were saying, right? I know what was going on. And I, I would sit in the back, right, with my arms full. I didn't have an iPhone. I didn't have an iPad. I didn't have any toys. It was church. I would really sit there with no idea what they're saying for four or five hours, right? And then what, what would happen? My mom would say, okay, it's time to leave. So what would I do? I would get up and I would sit down on a couch or a chair next to the door, right? Why? Because when my mom said it's time to leave, what that translates to, what it actually means is it's time for me to stand by the door and talk to my Nigerian friends again for another hour or two. That's what leaving means, right? And so I would, I would sit in the service for four or five hours and sit on this chair for another hour, hour and a half, and, and just wait. And I, and I saw this pastor, I said, I hated it, right? Because it reminded me that I was not in control of my life, Right? It, it, it reminded me that I was not in control of my life. That somebody else dictated ultimately what happened in my life. And I hated that. And I would literally think I cannot wait until I'm an adult and I can come and I can leave whenever I want, when I get control. And you look at our lives now as adults. We've got some hair on our chest. We've got some wisdom now. And this is what we crave is control. There's some areas we might see a little control, you know, here and there. We might tell God, oh, you know, Christ, Jesus, take the wheel, right? But as long as you're, you know, in the passenger seat, and, and can I keep my foot on the pedal and on the brake? And Loki, if I don't like where you're turning it, I might take it back, right? And I do the same thing. I might pray to God for one, two days about stuff. I might cry out to God for, I might fast for a day or so. But if God doesn't quite answer things on my timeline, it's back to me. And I'll strategize and I'll plan and I'll stay up all night writing diagrams and, and, and all, think of all the solutions and the possibilities. Because I'm like, ultimately, I want to be the one in control. God, you could have this area, you could have that area. I want the full control though. And so I will figure it out. I'll give you a shot at it. If you don't do it in 24 hours or less, I'll, I'll figure it out. And I almost missed the times where I was forced to remember, forced to wait, forced to be patient, forced to remember that I'm not in control. And so I think Moses says tomorrow, right? He had to also relearn how to wait. Why do I say that? Because this word tomorrow, it's not his word. It's God's word. What I mean by that is if you read the plagues uh, earlier in Exodus, and I'll kind of go through them quickly for you. God says this time after time again. I'm thinking about Exodus, you know, 8, the fourth plague with the, the flies, you know, and, and God's telling Moses he'll send the flies uh, to, to, to Egypt and to Pharaoh to punish them. He says, but I'll save, and this is in verse 22, I'll save Goshen, right, where people are living. Flies won't be there. Right? And this way you'll know I am the Lord. And 23, I'll make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place when? Tomorrow. Verse 29, after it happens, Pharaoh's mad. He says, please, or he's desperate. He says, please, Moses, tell God to, to, to rescue our people. He says, okay, in verse 29, I will leave you and I'll appeal to the Lord. And tomorrow the swarm of flies will depart. In chapter 9, right, verse uh, 5, this is a plague of, of the death of the livestock, the animals are dying, and this is happening. And God says, you know, I'll set a time in verse 5, and tomorrow the Lord will do this thing. 
In verse 18 of the same chapter, right, this is the plague, of, the plague of the hail coming down from the heavens. And God once again says that I will rain down the worst hail in verse 18. When? Tomorrow. Chapter 10, verse 4, the plague of the locusts who are coming, destroying all the land. And he says, if you ref- tell Pharaoh in verse 4, if he refuses to let my people go, then tomorrow I'll bring the locusts into your territory. And so God is the one using this word, setting the precedent that I will do this, but you will have to wait until tomorrow. You will have to wait until I say so. Because ultimately, when I act, it's on my own time because I'm in control. And so God said this to Moses time after time after time again until he was conditioned. In this moment to know, I may have to wait on the Lord. So tomorrow is when God acts. Tomorrow is when God shows up. Tomorrow is when God will save his people. I will go up tomorrow. That's patience. That's patience in a desperate situation to be willing to wait on the Lord. And why why does God want us to do that. I, I think it is part of, part of it is, is the control thing. I think part of it, um, and if you have your Bibles, maybe you can turn with me again to Exodus 15. We read this last week. This is the, the first story of the Israelites not having any water. And I didn't read this last week, but at, at the end of this, this section, after God provides them water because they cry out, Moses cries out to God. In verse 27, it says they come to Elam where there are 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the water. So they come to this place. There's no water. They're desperate. They cry out to God. God answers them. And then they keep going down the path that God originally had for them. And what happens? They find 12 springs of water. More water than they would have had before. If they would have just what? Waited on the Lord to provide. I think that's part of what God wants us to do in our hearts when he wants us to be patient. He's saying, do you not realize that if you wait for me to act, it will be so much better than if you did it yourself. It'd be so much more satisfying that if you try to force water right now on your microwave time, it would be so much better. I will provide the water and be so much greater if you just wait, if you're just patient. I thought the example I shared last week of, you know, little baby Tate, right, who, who uh, saw his mommy, started crying, crying out for her uh, to help. And I was kind of facetiously and joking this week with somebody being like, I think he just knew I wasn't going to give him anything. Right? If, if he cried with me, I'd be like, oh, I don't, I'll just put you down. Like, I don't know, on his table. Like, I don't know what to do. You know what I'm saying? Like you're thirsty, you're, you're hungry, I can't help you. You know what I'm saying? Like he knew to wait for his mother who could actually provide. And that's the first lesson that we must learn, the first posture that we must have. The Bible says time after time again, wait on the Lord. Be patient and trust that tomorrow he will answer you. He will deliver you. And it'll be better than if you rushed and did it yourself. So that's where the patience comes from. You say, okay, 
He's patient. Uh, where does a desperate come from? Right? Desperate patience is what I said. Where, where does a desperate come from? I think there's two things that Moses uh, does in this passage that makes me think he's desperate. Right? The first thing, it says that before he goes to the top of the hill, he brings Aaron and, and her with him. Right? Him and her. Brings him up with him to the top of the hill. Right? I thought this was interesting because I was like, you know, Moses, I think, had an idea of what he was going to do already. I think he knew he was going to go on the hill and raise his hands and all this. I think he had an idea of what he was going to do. Um, but I don't think he understood how hard it was going to be, right? I think he knew he had to wait, right? He said, tomorrow, I'm going to, you know. I think he knew he had to wait. I don't think he knew how long he had to wait. And so my question was, if he didn't know how hard it was going to be, right? Because if he didn't know how hard it was going to be, from the jump, he would have went up there, right? He would have sat down right away, right? He would have laid against a stone. He would have said, hold my hands up. Like, right away, he would have done that. But he didn't, right? He tried on his own first. So it shows us he probably didn't quite know how hard it was going to be. So why did he bring Aaron and her with him? I think the answer is simply because he was like, just in case. Just in case. Because for Moses, he knew how important it was that he goes to this hill and he cries out to God. He knew that the the outcome of the battle was dependent on him crying out to the Lord. And so he says, just in case my strength fails, I want to bring support. He said, I cannot rely on myself alone because if I fail, what would have happened? You have to climb down the hill and then get people to come back up the, up the hill. And by the time all that happened, the war would have been over. They, they, they would have been slaughtered. And so Moses, is, he, he knows, he says, I, I am so desperate for God's help. I won't leave it up to just my strength alone. I will bring help just in case. And I thought of, you know, this summer I told people, I said, I think I've helped double-digit double people move. This summer. I got at least 10 people I've helped move this summer, right? And I can't tell you how often when, when I come to help them move, it's, it's like them, me, like one other person, you know, and, and like their, their dog. And then that's it. And I literally have said to people like verbatim, I'm like, you know you have a church full of able-bodied young people who be willing to help you. Like, where, where are they at? Like I'm flattered that you think I'm like that strong and that I could move it all by myself. But my lower back says you're not that strong. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, where, where is the church ahead? Right? And I say it kind of facetiously, but I, but I think honestly, that mindset like permeates our church and permeates the hearts of believers. And I know part of it's cultural, part of it's societal that when we need help, we're like cautious. We're like, we're like we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to ask. But I'm like, then are you desperate for help because what happens if your strength fails and and to me i am one of the worst people at this i'll admit to you right i'm one of the the most toxic masculinity people like you will find i love being strong i love appearing that i'm put together that i have everything together but even me god has had to humble me and show me if you seriously and desperately want my help, why will you not recruit other people to support you just in case? To fast with you. Say, hey, can you fast with me for a week? Hey, can you go through this passage with me for the next month? Hey, can you pray with me? Maybe just for today. 
Can you come alongside me? Because I'm scared that my strength may fail on my own. And God has had to show me. I, I've, been, I've been in this last season asking everybody and, and their grandma to pray for me. And literally, I had a girl in my smoker who told me a story about her grandma prays and God answers her prayer. And I said, tell your grandma to pray for me. I've been calling my mom, being like, tell all your Nigerian friends who kept me in that church for eight hours, pray for me. Because I am scared that as I'm praying, as I'm seeking God, that my strength will fail. That I will get discouraged. That I won't, I won't want to wait any longer. And it's happened. I do not like praying for myself for a long time. I, I don't like it. I'm not good at it. And in, in these moments of failures, I've gotten texts with her being like, you know, my grandma said this. Stay close to the shepherd because I'm praying for you. I'm like tearing up thinking about it, right? I had a pastor from my Nigerian church a long time ago. He, he messaged me on Facebook and said, we're, we're praying for you. We want to speak this encouragement over you. My mom every day texts me. I've been praying about what you said to pray for you about. And that gives you strength. And that gives you courage. And that shows God you're not playing around. You are desperate for him to help you. So you will not rely on your own strength alone. The second thing Moses does is that he sits down. He gets a stone behind him and he sits on the stone. And this is important because in that culture, a standing was especially a sign of respect, right? And it's carried over today. You know, we stand for the national anthem. You know, when we used to meet together in person three years ago, right? we, used to, we used to stand and we, we say, well, you know, uh, we're not reading the word of God. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, right? It's a sign of respect. And that means even more so that sitting was actually a sign of disrespect, like no one, you would never sit in the presence of a king or a lord or a ruler. You would never do that. And Moses right now is in the presence of God and he's sitting. So he would never do this unless he was so physically exhausting that he couldn't stand. Which one uh, shows us how desperate he is. But also too, and I, this could be a stretch, but what kind of came to my mind, it's, it's almost like Moses wants God's help so bad, he throws out all the formalities. You know what I'm saying? He throws out all, all the spiritual uh, discipline and spiritual like, things he should be doing, the religious things, the expectations of him, and just says, I am coming to you desperate for your help. And I think of David in the Bible who writes things that even us as a culture who, who struggle with respect, we wouldn't even say the things that David writes. God, how long will you forget me? God, why don't you answer my prayers? God, why do you reward wicked people and punish righteous people? God, God where are you? God, what are you doing? That's how David uh, writes and prays to God. He throws out the formalities. He throws out the niceties. And he just comes to him. He trusts him that God is gracious. God is his father. God is his friend. He just comes to him as he is. He says, God, help me. And I think God looks at their hearts and says, they're desperate. It's not, it's not disrespect, it's desperation. But they didn't even want to front, they didn't even want to play. It's, it's like, it's real talk right now. They want my help. And I think at times we could actually see how desperate we are in our prayers by the vernacular we use in our prayers. Like if we're kind of posh and we're kind of like snooty and we're kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like you can kind of tell if you mean it or not. 
I bet the Lord can too. Are we, are we desperate in our prayers? Do we throw out people's expectations of us when we seek out God, or are we still mindful of how we're supposed to act? And Moses kind of bucks that trend here as he sits down in the presence of the Lord. And so you see where his desperate patience, his desperate waiting becomes the posture of his heart. I'm going to call the band up now. And you might say to me, well, David, um, you know, what do we do? How do we begin to assume this posture if we don't already have it? And there's two things very quickly I want to say, just two things. If you're not already in a situation where you feel desperate or you feel like you really need the help of God, I would say the first thing that you should do is actually remember your enemy. I had someone from my small group this past week tell me, you know, the Amalekites were considered the first enemies of Israel. And it's true. It's for, they're considered the first people to attack the nation of Israel, to attack God's people. And at the end of this passage, God says that that's why I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to fight them from generation to generation. It's an interesting phrase. It's like they are both the first enemy and they're the long-lasting enemy that we have. And when I thought about that, it was almost like God gave me spiritual eyes to see what was happening here. That maybe they represent more than just a people attacking a nation, but they represent our enemy attacking our humanity, attacking mankind, our first enemy of sin and death and the devil attacking us and us being this ever, not everlasting, but this, 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 this long-lasting battle from generation to generation with sin and with death and with Satan. And we are like Joshua. We are called to go and to fight the enemy. To fight things like injustice, to fight things like broken systems and broken people and broken hearts and the sin that captures even our own hearts, to fight that, to bring shalom back to this world. And if you think and you remember that call and you remember it's a lion, it's a dragon that's roaring, that's trying to fight, that's trying to destroy us, that's waiting till we are vulnerable to attack, you'll be desperate you will quickly remember your limitations and you will run to God for help. And so remember, no matter how complacent you feel, no matter how comfortable you feel, no matter how much this world has told you your only purpose is to make money, buy a yacht, chill, have fun, you're actually in a battle and you're in a war. How about the patience part? How do we have hearts that are more patient? In that case, I would say, remember your Savior. See, what's interesting about the people who were fighting Joshua and the few soldiers he was able to muster up to go against this great enemy is that the outcome of the war was actually not dependent on their fight. No matter how well or how poorly they fought, it did not change the outcome of the war. No, no, no. The true battle, the true victory happened on the hill above them. Where one man was standing 
and he needed support for his arms to be raised. And he was tired and he was battered and he was crying out to the Lord on behalf of those who are on the ground fighting. That's where the victory came from. And that's where our Savior was on Calvary. And so we can remember that it's not up to us. It's on him. He said, I will be the one that wipes out your enemy. And if you can remember that, you will wait for him to move. You will wait for him to lead. You wait for him to act. You might do things to fight. You might do things to, to, to try to hinder the enemy. But ultimately, you're like, it's up to you. And so I will wait on you. I will be patient when I remember that you are the one who knows what the 12 springs of water ultimately are. And so I will go wherever you're guiding me. I might be thirsty right now. I might be hungry right now. I might be discouraged. I might be stressed. But ultimately, I trust you will lead me to that place. And you will lead us to victory. And when you can remember our Savior, you'll have patience. And you will wait on him. So last week, your homework was, you know, think of the things that made you stressed, the things that uh, keep you from trusting that God's presence is among us. And this week, I want to say, what keeps you from being desperate? What makes you complacent? What makes you comfortable? What keeps you from being patient, from waiting? What makes you want um, to rely on your own strength now or to rush God to do something before you keep crying out to him? Reflect on that, pray through that, and see where the Spirit is leading you, that you may become desperately patient for your Savior.